0: Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Rabina podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planting and leading thriving local churches. For the last two years, we've been journeying through Genesis as a community, delving into the origin stories and histories of our faith. In this series of Genesis, we step into the patriarchal families of Abraham and continue to see how both the promise of God is fulfilled, but also the brokenness of man. Ultimately, we see that even though we are the great promise breakers, is the great promise keeper. We pray that this message is a blessing.
1: Jesus, Lord, we come before You now and we just still our hearts. Lord, we are conscious that You're with us, that You're speaking. And Lord, we just need You. More than my voice, we need to hear Yours. So less of me, more of You, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Friends, I wonder if you could go back to when you were 10 years old, whether you're in the room or online today, if you go back to when you were 10 years old, what would you tell your 10-year-old self about the future? If it was on me and I could go back to when I was 10 years old, I would say, hey, Michael, listen, you're going to go through high school and you're going to like a lot of different people and then you want to have relationships and find a girlfriend and no one will look twice at you. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Because in year 12, you will think the answer to your relationship was is to form a band. Form a band with your best mate called Ben Parnell, even though you play no instrument, you can't sing, and you're not even sure what a musical item is. You will form a band in year 12, and that band's name will be Searching for Sarah. True story, year 12, I formed a band called Searching for Sarah. This was our album cover. This is the album cover of a band that never wrote any music. This is my friend, Ben. He's looking at me asking, why the hell are you touching my shoulder? Please get your hand off me. And we formed a band called Searching for Sarah and we were endeavouring that this was my, you know, just the way I'd finally get a girlfriend. And uh, needless to say, didn't happen. Uh, but what I'd say to 10-year-old self is say, but Michael, what you don't know is at the end of year 12, You would graduate. And merely five years later, a blonde-haired woman would walk into church and her name would be Sarah and your search would be over. You would have found Sarah. You'll marry her. She's your best friend. You have three kids together. And in Jesus' name, your life will be beautiful. So Michael, 10-year-old self, wait for Sarah, right? Now, that's beautiful. I was in a band called Searching for Sarah. It only tweaked a couple of years ago. I'm like, oh, I found her. Hey, that's pretty cool. Thanks, Jesus. But I wonder... If I had listened to myself, if I actually went back in time and I told 10-year-old Michael, hey, don't worry about the acne, don't worry about all this stuff, just make your way through. And I had decided that I would pursue no other girl, that I wouldn't you know, have any other dating relationship, that my heart would never be broken, but I would hold out till I was 23 for this mythological creature known as Sarah Turner, who wasn't mythological, she was real, she's, I have a wife. There's this, and she walks in. I wonder if I'd avoided all the heartache and all the pain and all the suffering I wonder if I would have been the man that Sarah ended up wanting to marry. If I'd be able to go back in time and tell myself to avoid the pain and wait for what was coming, I'm not sure I would have been the man that Sarah wanted to marry. I say this today because I wonder if when we go back in time, we think when we go back in time as if we do it every day. Hey, you know, when we go back in time, if we were to go back in time, I often think that we would try to save ourselves pain. Hey, you know what you should do? Invest in Apple. Do it now. Seriously, that'll be a long form. You won't be poor when you grow older. It'll be great. Hey, invest in Bitcoin, but get out before 2022. You'll be, you'll be fine. We say things where we're like, man, just avoid the suffering. But here's what I think. If we were to avoid the suffering in our life, we wouldn't become who we're called to be. And so I want to answer the question, how, do we, how are we meant to live when we don't know what's coming next? How are we meant to live when well, maybe even right now in the moment we're walking through pain? Right now in the moment we're walking through an obstacle. Now I'm not talking about where is God in the middle of suffering because Anna's going to talk on that next week at our 6pm service. But, but what I do feel in my heart to answer the question of is sometimes we think life is about avoiding the obstacles. But I actually believe that it's in the obstacles, in the crush, it's in the weight, it's in the pressure that God leads you to become. That God leads you to become who He has called you to become. If there is a working thesis for today's sermon, if we're talking about any idea today, it would simply be this that I believe that God turns what the world purposes for evil, and scripture testifies to this God turns what the world purposes for evil to shape us for our good and his glory. But that means that right now, for some of us, we could be joining us online in hospital right now. There are some of you in this room that are walking through some fairly serious obstacles. Some of you feel the pressure of life all around you. Some of you, you're walking through things God never intended or never desired. Like evil things have been happening in your world. But here's what I know. While God may never be the cause of evil, He never wastes the suffering that evil produces. He uses it to allow us to become. And for that, we're gonna look at a man named Joseph. Today, we're in week four of our Genesis series. If you haven't been with us the last three weeks, every week we've been doing like a summary of the week before. This week, it's too long. We're not gonna get there this week. And so if you've missed the three weeks, that's on you. Go listen to the podcast. We'd love you to catch up. It's, you know, I'm sure it'll take a little while, but it's a beautiful story. Starts with Abraham who marries Sarah, gives birth to Isaac, who marries Rebecca. Isaac and Rebecca give birth to Jacob and Esau, if you remember those two kind of had a fight. But then Jacob, who now becomes named Israel, He gives birth along with his wives, Leah and Rachel. He doesn't give birth, he's a man. His wives give birth to 11 sons. And the youngest son is a son named Joseph. Now someone came to me in the service and said, Michael, there's 12 sons, you forget Benjamin. And Benjamin comes along later in the story. But there's 11 sons. The youngest one is Joseph. And in Joseph's story, we see what it means to walk through obstacles in life when you don't know how it's gonna turn out, trusting in a God who you know is faithful, trusting in a God who you know is good, trusting in God who can take what the world is doing to you or around you, even what your own mistakes have generated in your life, that God might lead it. To allow you to become who He has always called you and purposed you to be. To know this, would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 37? There are three things we're going to talk about today in the the story of Joseph. We're going to talk about the poison of pride, the formation of humility, and the blessing of integrity. Everyone say integrity. Integrity. That was okay. The 8am was a lot more alive. Let's try again. Everyone say integrity. Integrity. We have a rule. I've got like 20 minutes left of being able to preach. I'm going to nail it if you are responsive. Amen. Amen. I used to grow up in a church which is fairly charismatic. They said, I'm preaching better than you're saying amen. And I used to think, are you though? Are you really? Anyway, Genesis chapter 37, verse two. We read this and we jump into the story of Joseph. Joseph, a young man of 17. Was tending his flock. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending his flock with his brothers, the sons of Bilhar and sons of Zilpah, in case you are wondering what you should call your next child. His father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Verse 2, now I know it's not on the screen behind me, that would be my fault, not the projectionist's fault. I probably forgot to put it in the PowerPoint. But we have this moment where the story opens up. And in this story, Joseph comes along. And he's 17 years old, he's the youngest child. Shout out to all the youngest children in the room. If you've been here the last three weeks, you know that Genesis is a defense of being the youngest child. Amen! Amen. And there's a moment where he steps in to an environment where his brothers are looking after sheep. Most of his brothers are young adults. They're probably uh, grown up men, maybe even have families of their own. And in this moment, this youngest child named Joseph, we find his character. We find out what he's like. What happens in the story is that it says that Joseph is watching over the flocks with his brothers and then he finds his brothers doing something naughty. And what does Joseph do? He runs to tell dad. He runs to tell Daddy, Daddy, you'll never guess what my brothers are doing. Now what are his brothers doing? Who knows? They might be using the sheep as like rodeo bucking bulls. They might be tying their legs together and sending them off. I don't know what shepherds do for fun with sheep. I'm not from New Zealand. But what I do know <laughs> is that there's this sense where they're not doing what they should be doing. And Joseph does what every theologian would call. It's a theological term for someone like Joseph. The theologians would call Joseph simply a dibba or a tattletale or a snitch. There's no Hebrew word for snitch. It's just snitch. He's the kind of guy that you you don't want around and if you are a youngest child we know he's a very typical youngest child he goes running for daddy when he sees his 10 brothers doing something wrong hey daddy you'll never guess what they're doing in the field and we also know what this does this ostracizes him from his family Now, if you're new here today and you are unaware of the Bible, this story takes place at the very start of the Bible. It's where God is forming His people, where God is revealing His character. But what we see at the very start of the Bible is the brokenness of humanity. And here, Joseph starts it early. How does Jacob respond? How does Jacob respond to Joseph's over-reliance of his father to break up his shepherd brothers from doing naughty things? In verse three, we read this. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his whole age. If I was to ask you as a parent, who's your favourite child? If they're sitting with you, why don't you point at them right now? (laughs) I'm kidding. No, hopefully you would say two things. I don't have a favourite child. I love all my children differently. This one, I love to hang out with all the time. That one, I love whenever he's not in the same room as me. It's beautiful. (laughs) It's a beautiful thing. You would know it's not good to have favorite children, but you hear a pattern about what's happening in the story. Now, for those of you who've been here the last couple of weeks, have we ever had someone else that had a favorite child? The last couple of weeks, have we heard other parents that love someone more than others? Esau was loved by Jacob, Joseph's father. No, sorry, <laughs> Jacob. Jacob was loved by Isaac. Once again, I've got it wrong. Let's rewind it. Everyone just forget everything I said for the last 30 seconds. 8 a.m. didn't have this problem. Guys, wake up earlier. You get a lot more, less mistakes in the sermon. So here we go. Isaac, who's the dad, loved Jacob. Some people are here for the first time today, hearing the Bible being taught, they're like, this thing does not make sense. Isaac loved Esau more than Jacob and Jacob was loved by his mother, Rebecca. Why do I say this? Because generationally, Jacob's parents had favourites. And if we remember what happened, it divorced the family. It separated the family. It had dysfunction in the family. And what do we see Jacob do when he has his own sons? He does the exact same thing that his dad does. Why? Because I think I want to challenge one thing that stands out to me today is going to be a bit confronting to us, and I don't want to freak us out, but it's something that, that we might know is generational sin. That unaware, what we do is we repeat the mistakes of our parents who repeat the mistakes of their parents, who repeat the mistakes of their parents. Jacob probably thought his whole life, I can't believe my dad had a favourite. But when his opportunity came along, he had his own favourite. Why do I say this? I say this as a sidebar, not just to parents in the room, but to everyone in the room. When our lives are led and and they're not examined and we don't study what's going on in our hearts or even the things that have happened to us generations before, so often we end up repeating what was done to us to someone else. If we're not careful to invite God in and say, God, there are stories about my parents have passed on to me that I need you to heal. Otherwise, I'm going to treat, treat someone else like this. And the story of Genesis is comforting in one way because it's a story of dysfunction. Sometimes I read the Bible and I'm like, God, where are all the good people? This thing's messy. But then I realize how comforting it is that Genesis is filled with broken and dysfunctional families. Why? Because friends, we all have some level of brokenness and dysfunction in our family, don't we? And there's this beautiful truth about that. David Guzik would say it like this. Your messed up family, past, present or future, does not mean God has forsaken you or that some cloud has come over you that will never pass. God works in you and through difficult and messed up situations. And I'm not going to go too far into that today, but I want to let you know, if you have a broken family or a messed up family, God is not afraid of your mess. But He does ask, would you submit it to Him? So what's been messy in the past might not be messy in the future. But the second thing we see happen here is unfortunately Jacob is setting Joseph up for failure. Not only does it say that he was Jacob's favorite, but it also says Jacob making him this beautiful coat. You might remember Joseph from the Technicolor Dream Coat. That's from this story. And he makes him this beautiful multi-layered coat. And theologians believe that it came down to his wrists and down past his knees, which meant that it was a coat that wasn't meant to be worn whilst working. So Jacob gave his son a coat to wear so that his son wouldn't work in the field but be with his father in heaven. What's his father doing right now? Unassumingly, Jacob is painting a massive target on Joseph's back for his older siblings, right? Yeah, those of you who are laughing, you know you were the youngest child. I was too. This kind of stuff's not helpful. It's pretty much a massive target with a sign on the back that says somebody older than me, kick me when I come past. But what Jacob is doing to Joseph as well is he's actually telling Joseph, you're better than others. You're my favourite. He started Joseph on the path of pride. And pride is really dangerous. And we see it played out in Joseph's life. In verse five, it says, "This Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more." He said to them, "Listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it." Now, let's just be clear: the Bible and, and and most commentaries would agree that this is not just Joseph having some indigestion and dreaming at night; that this is actually a dream from God. That God shows him a dream of something. Spoilers alert! That's going to happen at the very end of his life. And and God reveals this to him. But Joseph does what so many of us do when God tells us something about our life or God gives us insight into the future. Joseph doesn't use it to come before God and go, hey God, what does this mean? Joseph uses it to be like, I have to go tell everybody that I'm better than them. So he goes up to his brothers and he tells them this story and his brothers turn around and be like, what do you you think? You're so good that you're going to reign over us. How does Joseph respond? He goes back to sleep and he receives another dream where sun and the moon and all the stars bow down to him. So he goes up to his dad. And he's like, dad, guess what? The sun and the moon and the stars, are all bow down to me and, and that's gonna be you and mum and all my brothers one day. And his dad's like, who do you think you are, son? What's happening in this story is not that Joseph hears he is wrong from God. Joseph lets his pride dictate what he's gonna do with what God's telling him in his life. He uses the word of God in a way where he chooses to push others down that he might be elevated. And in this moment, we see the poison of pride take room root. Here's Joseph, Joseph gets two dreams about sheep and wheat and, and moons and stars. And he goes, who should I tell? I should go tell my brothers because that would be something really great for them. And we're all like, dude, read the room. Read the room. In fact, from this moment forward, the Bible says that his brothers hated him and could not say a kind word about him. David Guzik goes on to say it like this, Joseph had the sort of pride common in, in the favoured and the blessed. He was so focused on how great his dreams were for him, he didn't begin to consider how the dreams would sound in the ears of others. Friends, when God's at work in our life, it is not a moment for us to allow pride to puff us up to act comparatively with others and let them feel less than us because God's doing more in our lives. And that's not the way God works because pride pride, is completely opposed to the work of God in our life. And God has to do something in Jacob because God wants to use Jacob for His glory, but God, God can't stand pride. And in my experience in the story of Jacob and the story of my life, the truth is this, either we choose to humble ourselves before God or He will use the world to humble us in His place. Because God is seeking a people of humility. A lot of people of pride, 1 Peter 5 verse 6 says this, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that He may lift you up in due time. Here's the problem, friends. Maybe you're here today and you don't really understand Christianity. Christianity would say this, at the very beginning of all time, the reason why the world is the way it is is because it was broken by pride. What is pride? Pride is ultimately when we say it's all about me. It's all about me. It's all about me. And just let me ask, at the moments in your life right now where you're saying it's all about me. You see, humility is different. Humility isn't like pride. Humility doesn't say it's all about me. Humility says it's all about others. C.S. Lewis says this, that humility is not about thinking less of yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. See, humility is others focused and friends, Christians, for those of you in the room, if you're a non-Christian in the room, hey, just chill for a second. Let me just talk to the Christians in the room. I think sometimes the world sees us more as proud than humble, more willing to talk about ourselves, fight for ourselves, defend ourselves, than to think about others. And pride is not the way of the Kingdom, it's not the way of the cross, and it's not the way of Jesus. So what does God do? Well, God doesn't necessarily do something because Joseph doesn't humble himself. The world the world around Joseph inflicts pain on his life. 30, in, in Genesis chapter 37, verse 19, we read how the brothers react to his pride. Here comes the dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Now let's just all admit, this escalates pretty fast. This is not a good way for you to treat your siblings in case you walk out of here today be like, hey, if you annoy me, I'm going to throw you in a cistern. That's where we're going to go next. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Because here's what happens with pride, friends Pride stirs up pride. Pride stirs up pride. When we think about ourselves and others feel that, guess what they start doing? They start being protective and thinking about themselves. Now in this moment they, they, they take off his coat, they rip it, they dip it in blood and they throw him in a cistern and they get prepared to kill him but then they're sitting around and Judah, the eldest brother, turns after hearing Reuben you know, defend his brother. Judah said to his brothers in verse 26, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. Why is Judah motivated to not kill his brother? Is it because he's worried about Joseph? What will we gain? Who's he concerned of? Him. He's not going, hey guys, it seems a bit far that we're going to kill Joseph. Seems a bit mean on him. Let's, um, let's maybe just dial this back a sec. He's like, no, no, guys, what, what are we going to benefit if we actually do this? Let's not worry about that because then we have to carry the guilt of it. Instead, I've got a better idea. Let's sell him as a slave. This story gets dark, but what ends up happening is that the brothers are sitting around, and the story shifts pace. They sell his brother to a travelling chain of, of, of slavers heading to Egypt, and they go back to his father and they say to Jacob, "Look, here is his cloak. Is this your son's favorite cloak?" And the father and Jacob says, "Yes, it is." And they go, "Well, he got eaten by animals. Look at the blood. It's it's horrible." And Jacob wails and he cries out and he's he's devastated. It says he says in the word of God, he says, "I will mourn for my son until the day that I die." And what we see play out here is what Pride does unchecked, plain and simple. We see the root of pride, not just in Joseph, in the whole family. We have a father who idolizes a son, who's living out his life through his child. And friends, we never do that, right? We never live our life through our children. We never kind of make sure that they don't make the same mistakes we do or like hoping that they're gonna achieve more. We, We would never do that to our children. There's a pride in the brothers where they see this young young upstart come with the Word of God like, oh, who are you to get a Word of God? I'm the eldest. How dare you challenge my right? I deserve pride. Then we see a young son who says, hey, you're all going to bat out to me. How good is this going to be one day? And where does this lead? Pride stirs up pride and pride leads to brokenness. And Jacob, Jacob ends up losing his son. His son is on his way to Egypt as a slave. And what we see is what happens when pride goes unchecked. We are left with suffering and pain and hurt in the world around us. John Stott says it like this, pride is the great sin, the ultimate, the self-deception. It blinds us to our weaknesses and destroys our relationships. And the problem is, friends, is that we've learned how to hide our pride with false humility. Like I'm humble. I'm so humbled to receive this award tonight. That's not humility. You've just replaced humble with proud, proud with humble, and think it sounds nice. I'm so humble to receive that job. I'm so I'm so humble to receive this job promotion. Thank you so much. This is great. No, because you you're still centered on you. True humility would be for us to post or tweet or talk about the things that are really embarrassing in our lives. Hey gosh, you think I'm pretty good. Today I farted on the train and everyone laughed at me. It was pretty embarrassing. (laughs) We don't do that. In fact, true humility would not be talk about ourselves at all. See friends, narcissism and self-loathing are the same ends of the spectrum of the same sin, pride. People who love themselves are just obsessed with themselves and people I know because I've been here who hate themselves are still just obsessed with themselves. Humility calls us to let go of ourselves and think about others and actually not meditate on who we are today. And I find this challenging. So what happens in the story, and we need to move quickly, is this, is that God responds. How? Well, we see in this story that God uses what the brothers intended for evil and turns it for his good and for Joseph's good, that Joseph might be humbled That Joseph might see his own weakness, his own need, his own recognition that he cannot be made great on his own, that he might truly depend on God and learn to put others first. Joseph does learn this. Spoilers alert. He survives slavery. And in Genesis chapter 50, at the end of the story, he turns to his brothers who gets reunited at the end. We'll talk about this in two weeks. And he says this, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Timothy Keller says this, Joseph's story is a cautionary tale about the dangers of pride. His dreams of greatness and his favoured status with his father caused him to become arrogant and boastful, but God humbled him through his trials and suffering. And Joseph eventually learned to rely on God's providence rather than his own abilities. I do not believe that God initiates the evil suffering many of us are walking through, but I do believe God never wastes it. God never wastes it. For God to fulfill his dream for Joseph's life, he needed to ensure Joseph was the first man, first a man of humility, so that he might become a man that does great things for others and not himself. Friends, you will have seen that Tycho has joined me on stage, which is the universal symbol of Michael. You need to start wrapping up. And so we will, and we finish not only with the poison of pride, not only with the formation of humility, which comes through suffering, friends. We are... Made humbled by the reality of how weak we are in our world to deal with what we're walking through right now. And I want to highlight that some of you are walking through obstacles and pains that I believe God is actually using to produce humility in our life. Because isn't it true that it's when things go wrong that our true character rises to the surface? When you get cut off in traffic, how many of us swear, yell, someone starts to raise their hand, like, no, no, no. <laughs> and things don't go right. Friends, I'm, I'm so good. I'm such a nice person until I come home at the end of a long day and Archer refuses to eat his dinner. Then a different, you know, grumpy dad comes out. Why? Because the pressure. Who are you when no one's looking? See for Joseph, he had to become someone in private before he could become someone publicly. So God takes him away and he goes on a trip uh, down to Egypt where he's sold as a slave to a man named Potiphar. I'm going to shoot through this story. And in this man named Potiphar's house, he becomes a slave. In fact, the Bible says in the next passage of Scripture, in, verse, in chapter 39, we skip a chapter, chapter 39, verse 3, it says that Potiphar saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave this man named Joseph success in everything he did. So what does he do? Potiphar elevates him and says, you get to be over everything in my house. Now this didn't happen immediately. We think sometimes that the Bible, the stories in the Bible are like, oh, and the next day, suddenly Joseph's in this great place. Actually, we find out by Joseph's genealogy, this process took 11 years. 11 years of hiding, 11 years of being a slave, 11 years of being in a place he didn't deserve because his brothers wanted to smash his pride. 11 years of God doing things in private, 11 years of struggle, 11 years of pain. And then he's noticed and he's elevated and he's now got a position where He's probably starting to feel, okay, things are going well, things, things seem to be in place, but then something goes wrong. But before something goes wrong, the 11 years are significant for us today because here's what I want to highlight. God does something in private in private in our lives so that we can cope with the pressure of what He wants to do publicly through our lives. In private, God forms someone in Joseph. God forms someone that's humble. God forms someone that's reliant. God forms someone that needs him because the next moment is gonna test. And in verse six, we read this, a line that I wish would be written about me after I'm dead. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. Why did you laugh? That's so painful. My wife laughed in the first service. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. And he refused. With me in charge, he told her. My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns has been entrusted to my care. No one's greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her. This is, this is a really crucial part in Joseph's story. He's second to his master. No one would know, she's a powerful woman. And in this moment, I wonder if after 11 years, Joseph's saying, God, I've done everything. I deserve none of this. I deserve nothing. And in that moment, I wonder if Joseph just had this part of his heart, when pressure comes on, when things are are hard, he goes, yeah, well, you know what, maybe I deserve this. But do you hear what he says? It sounds like pride at first, but when you actually read what he says, his whole motivation for not doing it is based on two things. How could I do this to my Master? And I will not do this to God. Joseph doesn't even say, this would hurt me. Why? Because in the pain of suffering, humility has been born in Joseph. How, why would I do this to someone else? He's entrusted this to me. I'm not gonna walk down this road and I'm not gonna do it to God. Because you see, friends, in the pressure of public life, in the pressure of what is happening in our worlds, that's where our integrity is really made manifest. And right now we see what those 11 years did in Joseph. It took him from a young upstart to being a boy that became a man that could be trusted. When darkness called, he chose to walk in the light. You know, when Navy officers release a submarine after being built in the dry dock, you know, very topical for us at the moment in Australia. I'm very overhearing about submarines. There's this moment where they have to test what's called the integrity of the hull. And to do that, they release a submarine that's been built in private into public space, into ocean water, and they submerge it. And as the water pressure increases, they're watching the hull to see if there are any cracks in the hull. And that's known as cracks in the integrity. That it looks like a great submarine, functions like a great submarine, but they don't know how good a submarine it is until pressure is applied. And then they know if the integrity of the hull can stand up. And is that not true of our lives? It's good that we look at integrity when things go our way. But isn't it true that when things start to go against us, that we can start to justify dabbling in darkness, that cracks start to appear, that our integrity is really made known? Why is that? Friends, I think sometimes we dabble in darkness and we justify it because of the cost of living in the light. Man, I've been so good. Man, I've tried so hard, I paid all my taxes, I've done everything, the government, the God, that my family asked me to do. I have do everything and I'm tired. So it's just one click. It's just one drink. There's nothing wrong with alcohol, friends. I'm I'm not preaching against that, but you would know what I mean if this is you. It's just one look, one gaze, one flirtatious conversation. We've all been there. We've all been at the brink of darkness and had to make the decision, what happens when the pressure's on? The next moment in the story, after Joseph said no to her, she keeps applying the pressure until one day she's alone in the house with him. She grabs his cloak and she says, come to bed with me. And he takes his cloak off and just runs. And for the second time in his life, his cloak is removed and it's used to wheel another deceitful story about him where she takes the cloak and says, hey, look what happened. Your servant came at me and tried to abuse me and I only got away with my life and his cloak. He's lied about, he gets sent to prison. And I say that because this isn't one of those stories yet where integrity means Joseph's life gets better. I think we fall into that deception sometimes, right? God, I've done everything You asked me to, so my life should look good. And then it doesn't, and then we're like, what? As if the aim of integrity is for everything in our life to go okay. The aim of integrity, friends, isn't that the next thing that happens is gonna be good. In fact, you look at history, when people stand up with integrity, it usually costs them. Martin Luther, I stand before the Catholic Church because I can do no other, but declare the grace of God is for all, that Scripture is for all, and it didn't go well for him. Let's look at another Martin Luther, Martin Luther King Jr. Stood up with integrity to fight for people who couldn't fight for themselves, didn't go well. So why? Why would we be a people of integrity? Because we choose to live not for a temporary situation, but we live a part of an eternal story. That Joseph knew that if he trusted in God, that God was the great weaver together, the tapestry of all things, he tied his integrity not to what happened next in the moment, but what he knew would happen for the rest of eternity. That's what it means for Christians to stand with integrity. And friends, we're coming to a day and an age and a time where our integrity will be tested. And it won't mean when we stand for truth, when we stand for love, when we stand for grace, when we stand for good, that everything will go our way. But here's what we know, that every part of the story when things got worse for Joseph, you know one line that was always there? The Lord was with Him. That's what I want my story to be about. in the midst of my darkness, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the hurt, I am guaranteed and I know the Lord is with me so I will walk in the light that's the way of Jesus Jesus was a man of integrity a man of humility who did not count in quality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself of all things taking on the form of a servant becoming nothing he endured the shame of the cross for the joy that was before him Jesus acted with integrity before Pilate before Herod before the Pharisees before all people and it didn't end well for him but it didn't stop with death the story got better. And that's the story I'm a part of. Friends, I wanna challenge you today. Integrity looks like the businessman in this room right now, today, who chooses to sacrifice profit to uphold your character. The choice right now is that person in the room who has the choice to gossip about their boss or their colleagues and they choose not to and they're overlooked for a promotion. The choice right now is a person who chooses to confess about what's been going on in private, that the cracks in their integrity might be dealt with by the grace of His love. See, the way of Jesus is this, is that we all have cracks in our integrity. I have cracks in my integrity. But I bring those cracks to Jesus. I say, Jesus, let's deal with this together. So that when it counts, when it matters, we stand firm. Friends, is there pride in your life? What are you walking through right now is God forming humility in you. What does it look like for us to be people of integrity walking the way of Jesus? May we become who He has called us to be as we submit to the journey He has called us to walk. Would you stand and bow your heads with me? Friends, there are people in this room today that um, with every eye closed, that today you, would, you know the pain of pride. It's rife in your life. It's like it's stinging all you think is of yourself and you want to be set free. The Bible calls pride sin. And that so the antidote to sin is that Jesus came to set us free, to free us from self-obsession into others' service. That He would give us a new heart and a new life. All we have to do is say, Jesus, I'm sorry. And I choose to follow you as my Lord, my Saviour, my King. Hey friends, if that's you today, if you are drowning in the pride of your own heart and you want to follow Jesus and be set free from selfishness into selflessness, I'd love to pray for you. If that's you today, would you just raise your hand wherever you are right now? I'd love to pray for you. Would you raise your hand if you want to be set free from pride? I see that hand, I see that hand. It's awesome, thank you so much. It's awesome. Thank you, Jesus. Let's wait for a moment longer. Thank you, Jesus. Friends, God, we have Christians raising their hands. We have first time people raising their hands. We've got people who've raised their hands a hundred times before in church. And I pray right now for every hand raised. God, you know how many times I've raised mine. And Father, I pray right now that your humility would descend. That you'd wash them clean. And you'd set them free. Friends, there are some people who've responded for a second or a hundredth time. Some have responded for the first time. For those first times, we're going to pray prayer together. Would you pray a prayer this with me? And every Christian in the room is going to repeat it after me. Let's say this prayer. Dear Jesus, I'm sorry for my pride. I need to know Your love. Set me free. Wash me clean. I choose to follow You. As my Lord, my Saviour, and my friend. In Jesus' Name. Amen. Father, you are good and you love us. Thank you for your goodness. And I pray for those who responded for the first time today. Would you move in power? Would you move in power in their life? And would you speak afresh? And would they become to know that in what you're doing right now is a new creation, a new identity, and a new path? In Jesus' name we pray.
0: Thanks again for listening to The New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you'd like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or contact us through our Instagram or Facebook page. We pray that you have a great week. Be blessed.